0: You get to pop up a little bit and say, hold on, am I thinking about this from the right level? Should I be thinking about it in the weeds the way I am? Or is there an opportunity for me to step back a little bit and think totally, like solve this problem at a totally different level? And as the CEO or as the founder of the company, that's what people should expect of me. I should be the one pulling them up and saying, are we thinking about this the right way? Is there a different angle or attack angle on this? I shouldn't be the one that's trapped in the weeds with them
1: every day, providing the same perspective that they have. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode 7-1. That's the 71st episode of the Afternoon Tea Podcast where we chat with the founders of Canada's most interesting and successful companies. I am Chris Hobbs, the president and co-founder of TTT Studios, a Canadian software innovation studio headquartered here in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. We've already had some amazing guests over season five. And next week, we've got a fantastic one in Tamar Mohammed of Aspect Biosystems. Right now, I'm excited about today's chat with Steve Irvin of Integrate AI. We'll also hear from Reza V, the founder of this week's Canadian Startups We Love, Ovu so thanks for joining us today to listen to steve chat about his time with facebook aka meta and about the tough transition from small and agile to large and responsible don't forget to like subscribe or do all those things we podcasters love but now let's introduce steve Irvin. steve is the founder and ceo of integrate ai a leading artificial intelligence software company focused on making the interactions between people and businesses more natural and profitable. Prior to founding Integrate AI, Steve was an executive at Facebook's head office in California. Most recently as the global head of partnerships for Facebook and Instagram, Steve held other senior leadership roles at Facebook, including helping to build Facebook's presence in Canada as an early member of the Facebook Canada leadership team. Steve is a board member at Puller, a leading brand content technology company, and sits on the advisory boards for the Vector Institute, a global leading AI research institute based in Toronto, and the Canadian Centre for Aging and Brain Health Innovation. Steve is an academic all-Canadian graduate from York University. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're going to have some fun, I promise you today. So hey, let's just go right to the the brass tacks, the nitty gritty and all the good stuff. Tell me about the creation story behind Integrate AI.
0: Yeah, so it was about 20, end of 2016. And I was working at Facebook, I guess now Meta, uh, Mm -hmm. although it was Facebook at the time. And one of the things that I, I had the opportunity to do when i was there is to be able to spend some time with the ai research lab and you know it's one of the most advanced in the world and mm-hmm. got to see some of the work that they were doing in the sphere of ai and ml and got to see how that was translating into some of the products and the work that was being done inside of the company mm-hmm. and it really captivated me you know I'd, up until then i didn't realize how far along um, that shift had happened and under the right conditions you know when you had the right data if you had the right understanding of that data and how to use it, you know for these these um, machine learning or AI tasks, these intelligence systems could do unbelievable things. Mm. And so you know, I got captivated in one way, to say, this is the future, and it's here. You know, you can do this stuff today. And then you looked at where it was being applied. And it was largely by the big tech companies who had those conditions, had all the data, Mm -hmm. you know, had the ability to be able to roll this out to a, a large number of people. And it was largely on advertising use cases or some backend use cases to be able to create operational efficiencies. And you sit there and you say, with this type of technology, my dream would be to be able to apply it to the biggest problems that we're seeing societally, right? So, you know, can we use it to cure cancer? Can we use it to be able to understand how to make buildings more efficient or take the 2 billion people around the world that are unbanked and find a way to think about their creditworthiness differently or or give them a a different first step in in the financial world? Mm -hmm. And it turns out that those are, although the heartwarming problems that we'd like to see this technology applied to, Mm -hmm the hardest in practice to be able to address and the main reason is uh is twofold one is what we learned in the kind of machine learning ai world is that big models are winning and so if you look at anything that's happening today you know with DALL-E or gpt3 or mm-hmm. these big, you know stable diffusion these big models are all looking at huge amounts of data in order to be able to deliver the type of accuracy and and performance that you would look for. And at the same time, if you think about what's happening from a privacy and regulatory standpoint, um, data access is becoming more challenging. Mm -hmm. And so you've got kind of the need for data increasing exponentially in order for these intelligence systems to work. Yet at the same time, access to data is being curtailed in pretty major ways. And, and for good reason, by the way, mm-hmm. because of privacy, security, other kind of regulatory concerns. And the question is kind of, how does that get reconciled? And, and I got really curious about solving that problem is to say, if we want to make machine learning and AI force for good in this world, and we want to, to enable people, you know, a broad set of people to participate with it and to be able to see the benefits of it. We got to go to the areas where the sensitive data, the, the most sensitive data sits, and we got to understand how to unlock that data for really meaningful intelligence purposes. So back to my original point: when you go in and you say, "What does it look like to be able to do a better job at early detection of uh, certain types of cancer, or to solve for the three hundred million people with rare diseases where you just need a lot of samples?" to be able to detect those patterns. Mm-hmm. We have to find a way to be able to do to, to train machine learning models or intelligence systems on that data, while at the same time being sensitive to the privacy concerns, the security concerns. And that was really the genesis of the company. We said, how do we go and tackle those problems? They're going to be sticky. They're going to be challenging. But if we can help enable developers that are working in those spaces to be able to find a way to bring innovation through kind of advanced analytics, machine learning, AI into those type of problems and give them a new way to think about how to keep that safe and ensure that privacy of the individuals is being taken into account, that that could be a big unlocker for the type of um, progress that we'd like to see in this pretty foundational technology. And so we we set off five years ago to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's been a fun ride ever since.
1: I bet. I bet. So, I mean, on your, from what you're describing and from what uh, your website says, and I'll just ask the questions straight out is the future federated. Yeah.
0: So one, one of the things that we've focused on a lot, as we think about that particular problem of mm-hmm. how do you solve the data access problem? Mm-hmm. If, if the challenge, so I'll give you a perfect example. If you're looking to build um, an algorithm that does a better job at detecting um, breast cancer, mm-hmm what you need for that algorithm to work. The the big challenge in today's um, market is usually about the samples. Like how many mammograms are you able to train that machine learning model on? So algorithmically, we're a little bit ahead of where Mm -hmm. we are in terms of access to the data to make the algorithms work better than rules or any traditional way of assessing these issues. And so um, there's two ways to think about how to solve that problem in the future. One is take for granted the fact that we have to centralize data. So the way that machine mm-hmm. learning or AI systems work today is you need to be able to take data from wherever it naturally resides. You need to centralize it. And then once you've centralized it and you've got kind of one data set, then you train your machine learning model on it. And that leads to you know whatever application it is that, that you're looking for. Um, mm-hmm. The challenge with that is moving data around is actually one of the biggest security threats uh, it it comes with a lot of privacy issues. Mm-hmm. and therefore, you have to do a bunch of transformations when you try to centralize data. Usually, people anonymize data or they aggregate that data. And if you're feeding it into a rules engine or you're doing something deterministic with it, you know, like the older kind of software methods, it usually isn't that big a deal. Um mm-hmm. you know you're you're kind of anonymizing certain ways. You can still pull certain trends out of that data. But when you start to, to think about intelligence tasks, it becomes really challenging when you aggregate data because what, what a machine learning model needs to see is it needs to see a lot of individual level samples. And so mm-hmm. it, it kind of needs to pick up the natural phenomena or correlations mm-hmm. that exist yeah. in the data. Mm-hmm. And then it needs to use that to make predictions in other environments. And if it can't see the natural phenomena, because you've already kind of beaten it out by aggregating that data, mm-hmm. you know then, then the opinion that you've made in aggregating it overwhelms the opinion that could be made um, by the model. And so we, we believe that the alternative approach is much more effective, which is leave the data where it is. Mm-hmm. Don't ever move the data, but find a way to be able to change the way that the machine learning model gets executed so that you can train on the raw data. Because then you can trust it that it's going to get to a, a level mm-hmm. of accuracy where it's useful. And, you know, that's challenging to do because it means that you need to be able to, instead of moving the data, you need to move the models. So you need to find ways to be able to break apart the models, run them locally in all the places where the data exists, and then average them essentially such that you get the equivalent of a model that would be trained centrally, but without ever needing to move data from its uh, original location. So if you're talking about, you know, Mammograms is an example, you know, a very personal um, oh, yeah. piece of information. Moving that from the hospital in which that scan was taken is is a very challenging task. It, it has a lot of regulatory issues. Training on it in that environment and having it contribute to a model that can do a better job at being more accurate at, at diagnosing early uh, signs of breast cancer is really valuable, and everybody wants to get there. It's Mm -hmm. just about how do you do it in a world where the data is going to be growing in its distribution, you know, where Mm -hmm. everything is a computer from your car to everything in your home, and it's all collecting data, your phone, you don't necessarily want everything that you say into your phone or your facial recognition, Mm -hmm. you know, all going back to a central cloud that Mm -hmm. makes people feel uncomfortable. So how do we allow people to take the privacy stance that they want, which is my data, I own it, I keep it on my device, and that could be a company or an individual while at the same time say, yeah, I want to collaborate. I'd like this algorithm to get better. I want us to make progress in kind of key areas, even though the data is sensitive and mm-hmm. I don't want it to be out of my control.
1: You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. This, this we'll call it a federated model. Is that, is that a correct federated way of learning. calling it? Yeah. Okay. Federated learning. Because I mean, I've, I've been thinking a lot recently. I mean, I, I travel a lot. I, I get to go to Korea tomorrow um, for, for a bit, which would be good. Um, um, but I've been thinking, no, Asia, they they seem to be less restrictive on the data, so they've kind of got an advantage there. North America, we seem to be early movers on a lot of the technologies and the processes, yet we kind of drag our feet a little bit because, and in a good way, because we want to be thinking about the, the, the how do we make sure this. You know this. This privacy is still, you know, warranted and everything. But Europe, I think, has been on a major disadvantage in terms of technology because you know you don't look at any big. I don't. I can't name any big social media applications that came out of Europe. Or and I'd even say, you know, when when I was in Lisbon last year for the um, um, for the uh, the Web Summit, you know, you have you know the government there complaining, hey, Apple's got to use USB C. Like they're they're almost like dragging their feet, and I think they're going to be way behind with their their very very restrictive privacy requirements that they're forcing across across Europe. But if you're leveraging your model or your form, I think that could actually liberate a lot of that. Do you, do you have any business in Europe that can help them either catch up or even like start, you know, evolving their own technologies because of that the, those concerns?
0: Yeah, I think the way you're describing it Make sense as as a bit of a continuum, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about the one side of the continuum, which is you know really conservative and and really locked down on items like privacy and security, and I think culturally, you know, mm-hmm. you look at some of the the countries that have the strictest privacy laws, and there are countries that that you know very culturally believe in privacy as a, as a right that mm-hmm. that humans have, you know, often times Germany is cited as a um you know one of the leading countries in the world on on privacy issues. And mm-hmm. you know some would see that as very restrictive, but you know, as part of the German culture, it's it's really important that individual privacy is maintained and, sure. and it's a it's an important right. And obviously, you know, there's a long track record for why, why they feel that way. I think on the other side, there, there's often complaints about countries like um, mainland China, where, um, you know, there's a kind of opposite approach and a lot of information is made available. So, you know, researchers or app developers or others that are working with data um, can kind of work through the government and oftentimes potentially can get access to a lot of data. and, and, And there's some concerns about how liberally that data is obtained or you know the cameras that are all the corner capturing kind of people moving through cities and mm-hmm. and and a bit of surveillance tech there that people are worried about and I, I think the the answer to this one at least in my opinion is similar to a lot of other issues which which is it's somewhere in the middle you know we've got to find the right balance we don't want to be on one side where we say for the sake of privacy, we're going to curtail all innovation. We're not Mm -hmm. gonna allow new solutions to problems that we care a lot about solving into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And I think that the solution is not the other way either, which is the way we're gonna solve these problems is to not give humans kind of basic rights and to be able to uh, surveil them through all experiences and be able to kind of sell that data or use it for whatever purposes we want. We've got to find a way to be able to to walk and chew gum at the same Mm -hmm. time. And Mm -hmm. and that's complicated. That means that you need to get into more complicated um, ways of satisfying conditions that matter Mm -hmm. with purposeful innovation. And -hmm. I think one of the things that we found is critical to doing that in the intelligence world, if you think about like advanced analytics or um, AI and and machine learning, Mm -hmm. is starting to understand where you apply the governance. So if we think about privacy, security, all of these things are really important to us. The question is, what are you protecting against and where is it best to protect against that? And that's one of the areas where we're, I think we've seen the most innovation. Mm-hmm. In a traditional software world, usually it gets applied at the data level. So we go and we use system access controls. We say, mm-hmm. hey, Chris can see this information, but this has got to be hashed and you know, it's because he's in finance, he gets to see you know, certain financial information, but only a certain amount, and he can't see this information. Mm-hmm. And, and that's been pretty effective where we've had data that is kind of finan- like tabular mm-hmm. data, and we've had uh, rules that it's fed into or dashboards where we're looking for answers. It becomes a little bit more complex when we're running intelligence systems um, because mm-hmm. context is what matters, the most. Mm-hmm. And so what you really want to say is I want to protect people's privacy and I want to make sure this is secure to do this job on mm-hmm. this data. And the this job piece is the one that hasn't been well considered. Mm-hmm. And so what ends up happening is you set the restrictions on the data. So there's sensitive information in this data. Therefore, it's black. Nobody can use it. Mm-hmm. Or we're going to anonymize it. But good luck anonymizing a medical scan or somebody's genomics data. Like it, it's just a really difficult thing to be able to do effectively.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: the question is how do we enable us to get limited access? Like, how, how does a machine learning model get access to that data without a human seeing it, without um, moving it, but be able to ask a specific question of it? And then how do we interrogate that question and say, are we comfortable with the machine learning model asking this question? Are we comfortable that it satisfies privacy? Are we comfortable that it can withhold, withstand certain cyber attacks? Are we comfortable mm-hmm. that it's ethical and a responsible use of the data? And if we are, then that's how innovation gets in. If we do things where we say, that's got sensitive data, therefore, it can never be used for any purpose, period. You're never going to be able to get to a great outcome. And if we, if we say it can be used for every purpose always, then people are always right to feel like they're um, being taken advantage of or being exposed in ways that they feel uncomfortable. And so I, th- I think that's the innovation we're going to see over the next you know, five or 10 years. It's going to be mm-hmm. about how do we get thoughtful about the way that we enable innovation, not Mm -hmm. at the exclusion of really important issues that Mm -hmm. people are paying attention to now, like privacy and say like, let's just let it ride and see what happens. Mm -hmm. But actually saying, okay, those are the conditions that we need to meet. Mm -hmm. How do we meet those conditions and still be innovative? And I think that's where companies like uh, my company, Integrate AI, are really focused. It's about how do we help people be a little bit more um, specific about where things get applied, how jobs get executed, um, especially around data science jobs, so that mm-hmm. this huge investment that companies are making, right, hundreds of millions of dollars in data mm-hmm. science teams and tools, mm-hmm. can result in success and and great new innovation that like takes leaps forward in important areas, versus the state that it's in today, which you know if you follow kind of Gardner or any of these these reporting agencies you know, it's like 80%, somewhere in 80 to 87% of data science projects fail. And largely mm. it's for these reasons, you know, they can't get access to the data they need in the way that they need it to be successful. And so we got to resolve that issue. If we want to see this kind of burst of explosion, that's sitting on the other side of this,
1: these, these fabulous technologies. So Steve, you have raised an amazingly large sum, in fact, uh 50 million over uh, in funding over four rounds. And uh, you know, I always like to ask what, what, you know, what lessons have you learned? Is there a strategy you have? And is it a different strategy for each round or has it been a strategy throughout all four rounds?
0: Strategy for me is always built off the next round. And what do you need to do to put yourself in a position to have the next successful round? You know, if you think about, especially VC backed companies you know you're you're on a growth track. Once you take your first uh, investor on the venture capital side, mm-hmm. you get on a track, and that track is to be able to grow the company. Now you know we've we've seen some examples of people that have grown really unprofitably and and probably recklessly and and that that's the worst case scenario. But mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, it's about acceleration. It's about a big market opportunity that you can see and how do you execute well enough that you can scale and and capture that market opportunity? And so one of the things that I always think about when I'm raising money is, what do I need to do? What's that next round need to look like? Mm -hmm. And what are the milestones that I need to hit to get there? And how do I best structure this round to give myself the best chance possible of Mm -hmm. getting to a successful next round? And I think about that in terms of how much money should I raise? I think about that in terms of who I want to add on this round, right? Who are the partners? Uh, What are the firms that we're bringing on? Am I adding anybody to my board? How are they going to help me in that next phase? Mm -hmm. And I think about what am I asking of them outside of money? Mm -hmm. You know, what are are going to be the key risks? If I don't make it, I I love this pre-mortem thinking, right? Mm -hmm, We go mm -hmm. and say, let's just say it doesn't work out. I get to the next round and I'm not where I want to be. What's the most likely reason I find myself there? Mm -hmm. And I really focus on that. What do I need to do to mitigate that particular risk? And I use fundraising as a way to be able to get as much strategic capital as I can mm-hmm. to be able to conquer that next milestone. Mm-hmm. And the money you know, is, is obviously important to getting there, but I would say it is usually one of the least important aspects of the rounds um, because if all you get is money, I don't think you've increased your chance necessarily of executing against the plan. You've just got the money you need to get there.
1: Well I I I really like in the, uh, you know for the for the younger Canadian founders here this is this is a great lesson in the sense of you're not just thinking of capital as capital like the monetary you're thinking about it as you know it's attached to people who are also going to get you ahead which I think is is super important because you know sometimes that roller deck is uh, uh, I don't know people have those Zoom or the, Zoomer, the uh, you know the the phone book now I guess in your in your in your your cellular phone um you know is just as important the people who you can align behind you that can maybe open up some doors and all that. Well, you know I think the times passed a little bit where you know it's tightened up obviously in the in the in the um um in the found uh, the funding rounds. But you know, is it scary? I mean you raised a large amount of money obviously and it's it's it really sings you know really high praise towards what your mission is and where you're going and your team. but is it best to raise as much as you as you can um, like as the market will provide or is it best to be strategic and just think, oh, this is all I want because if our valuation's too high, the next round's going to be too difficult to uh, to prove?
0: I think we overestimate as as founders, mm-hmm. we have a tendency to be overly optimistic. Mm-hmm. And I think what that results in sometimes if you get too cute on how much money you're raising and you cut that too tight to the plan that you think you need to get there. I think that's the number one way companies die is they, mm-hmm. they raise too little mm-hmm. money. Um, I think you got to be careful about raising too much money if it puts you on a set of expectations that you feel you can't meet. So I think that's the one condition where I would say you've raised too much money. If you, if you can't put it to work effectively and feel confident that you've got a plan to get to your next milestones and your next round, I think you're just deluding yourself, which is going to end up in a, you know, a really bad set of outcomes with you and your okay. investors. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, a worse way to die, I think, in a lot of ways is. You don't raise enough because you've underestimated what is required or something happened, you know, we just went through a pandemic, it would, mm-hmm. it would have been really difficult to predict that. And having a little bit of insurance there so that you can focus less on your next fundraising round and more on growing the business, mm-hmm. making your customers successful is where I think founders and CEOs need to be focused Mm-hmm. So you want to fundraise as little as possible, which means if you can do a slightly bigger round, even if it means more dilution, but it gives you more chance to be able to execute on your plan, more insurance to be able to run. I've always been a fan of taking more than you think you need mm-hmm. if it's
1: available to you. Fantastic. Great, great lessons. Well, let, let's get into the, the the Facebook slash meta. How did how did you get involved in uh, such an interesting company?
0: So I got involved, uh, I joined our um, the Canadian office in you know the early days of Facebook Canada, and yeah, you know, Facebook Canada is has got an interesting lineage in the sense that you know Toronto was was one of the first um, cities in the world to really kind of blow up on Facebook. It was, mm-hmm. I believe, still the first to to reach uh, a million users on Facebook, and, and Canada was disproportionately represented early mm-hmm. in Facebook days. So you know, Canada when I joined was its own region you know usually gets kind of rolled into north america but at the time it was us canada europe mm-hmm. and then you know apac was really just getting off the ground and so it was mm-hmm. a really big center for uh, for facebook at the time and i got an opportunity to um come a leader in, in um the canadian market working for uh for jordan banks here mm-hmm. uh who who is you know a good friend of mine from before and and um you know, a mentor for me, and it was a really great opportunity. I got to understand what it felt like. This was the first large company that I'd worked for. I was a serial entrepreneur before, so it's the first time that that anybody agreed to to hire me into a role um, versus <laughs> just kind of creating my own role. Um, and and that was an interesting experience for me. And I and I got to spend a lot of time, you know, we we're still relatively small when I joined, I mean, not marking the dorm room small, but mm-hmm. just over a thousand people. And so it's still a, a relatively small company at the time. This was before just as kind of social network, the movie was coming out. And as mm-hmm. people were starting to understand Facebook, I'd say more of my conversations when I joined were with people that, you know, thought we would be the next MySpace or didn't really understand what Facebook was <laughs> at, at the time. So it's a very different company. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's something like 70,000 people today. So, you know, mm-hmm. a really different company in a different stage, um, than where, where Meta sits today, but it, it was really helpful for me. You know, I, st- I started in the Canadian office and then went to our head office and, and got the opportunity to run a number of our global teams and to, and including our global partnerships teams, a global strategy team, and, uh, a bunch of our developer ecosystem. And it, it really taught me, you know, what, uh, scale-up looks like? What does it mean Mm -hmm. to grow at, at, you know, ridiculous uh, velocity? How would decisions need to be taken? How do you think about recruiting talent? How do you build teams? What do you do with billions of dollars of expectations and billions of customers? And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, as you reflect back on, I think the story is well told now where I don't think all the decisions that were made kind of uh, as a scale-up kind of that went through are you know, the right decisions and you learn as as you move through. But I thought that experience for me was really invaluable. And I used to do a thing when I was there, which was kind of my entrepreneur test, which mm-hmm. is a big decision was coming down. And I thought, what would I do? And then mm-hmm. I saw what Mark did. And I'd say, huh, he went left and I went right. Why did he go left? And then try to get to that answer, like, hey, why would you make this decision? Or why are we going in that direction? And that was really valuable for me because it, it really was a lot of growth for me, as an entrepreneur to be able to play that game and then see the results of, you know, I guess I would, I should have gone left. And what does that tell me about my leadership style or my decision-making or what what kind of context was I not factoring in? And so I thought it was a really great training ground for me mm. and, and really helpful as I emerged again as a third-time entrepreneur, you know, I, I think I approach uh, company building
1: a lot different than I did before. What was your batting average compared to Mark? Did you actually think that through? Like, hey, I'm like 75, I'm 62, I'm 12. Like, oh my gosh, what is this guy doing? What (laughs) am I doing in this company? What is that guy doing? Yeah, you
0: know, it's interesting. I I didn't do the, you know, I I didn't pull out all the stats, but I would say it teaches you about where you think differently and, and allows you to interrogate why, which I think was the most helpful introspective job that it did for me. So it's less about, you know, can I get right as in, you know, his decisions are always right and the baseline is is 100% and I want to see how many I would, I would get right. It's more about understanding why, what is it in the way that he decided that was different than mine? And did we have all the same context and he just felt differently about it, like he weighted the factors differently? Mm. Or was it that... Um, he just fundamentally disagrees or sees something different. And, and obviously every leader's got, you know, things that they weight differently and, and things that they care about.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and that was the thing that was really helpful for me is when you looked at some of these issues, you say, Well, how should I think about you know the the ability to go really fast versus when we need to slow down? Mm-hmm. What type of issues do we need to spend more time on? Where does speed matter overall? Um, You know, how should we consider different stakeholders in some of these decisions? Uh, But I will say the one thing I learned is that uh, you don't need a lot of process at the beginning to be able to move fast and keeping small teams, Hmm. small kind of innovative teams working on problems is the way Hmm. to be able to, to solve them. And I think sometimes as an early stage entrepreneur, you feel like you need to, to show that you're putting process in, and that you're growing, and that you know you've you've got these things figured out, because it feels uncomfortable to work in a little bit more of an agile way, and I think oftentimes that means you introduce them too soon. Mm-hmm. But then, as you get to the scale up phase, you realize that you know sometimes a little bit more process, asking some different questions, mm-hmm. really matters. And I, I think that was the other learning for me is that you know I sit on the uh, Aviva Canada board now. Uh, mm-hmm. on a- services side. And one of the things I learned that I didn't that I didn't know before was this idea of three lines of defense. And the three lines of defense inside of financial services companies are that there's actually, you know they're structured in a way where the first line is people inside of the business and they need to think about risk. you know what risk are we taking here? Are we properly mitigating it with our strategy? Then you've got these second line functions like compliance and risk that are there to challenge the first line. Have they thought about it? Can I give them other angles? Am I comfortable with the way they're thinking about it? And then you have a third line, which is audit, that says, did the stuff that was supposed to happen get done? Mm -hmm. Is it actually happening in practice? And audit rolls right up to the the CEO. And so it creates this really interesting dynamic to be able to make sure that things like risk and compliance are thought of as as first-class concepts. Compare that to a startup, where I used to say, we have three lines of offense, you know, if anybody's challenging me, they're yeah. challenging me. Saying, are you thinking big enough? Are you moving mm-hmm. fast enough? Could you go bigger? And that idea of when do you start to add in some of those considerations? When do you start to put, you know, different people in that are going to ask a different set of questions that are much more focused on, you know, protecting people, protecting data, thinking about the consequences of moving quickly in some of these areas, I think it's a really interesting challenge that you reach when you're in a scale up. Because you you know you want to act the same way that got you there, right? You want to act in a way that was really successful for you when you were a small company, beating the odds and, and conquering the world, um but when that flips over to being able to make sure that that you're acting responsibly and you're thinking about all the ways in which um you know you could you could be um you, your impact could be could be negative. Uh, it's a really challenging transition. so I, I thought I saw the beginning of that. i I, I was out um. A uh, Facebook, you know, by the end of 2016. So I didn't see a mm-hmm. lot of, um, you know, what's happened in, in the last while. But I thought even when I was there, it was some really good learnings for me on, on that front
1: as well. Well, that's awesome. And I assume you got the Facebook 15, uh, which I hear about. I've been on campus. I got a great tour. And yeah, you get a lot of food down there. I, I You can eat all day if you want to.
0: It is a an unbelievable setup. I, I think you know if you go to any of those campuses down there, and, and mm-hmm. you know, my, my family and I were living in in, in Menlo Park, and you know, it was an easy easy kind of walk to the to the office. And yeah, it, it, they they found a way. I think they called it the Disney World for for kind of tech workers. But you know, it it really is that case. You you have everything you need, all the amenities that you need on campus. It, it creates kind of a friction free. Opportunity to focus a lot of your time and energy on solving the problems that you're responsible for solving, and I think you know that that creates an ideal work environment. Now, whether that's reasonable and that's the way that it's going to work moving forward <laughs> in this type of a climate, you know, I, I think we'll probably see some scaling down, and, and and maybe that was the the heyday of really trying to indulge employees to be able to make sure that you could retain them and and create a, an environment to bring out the best in them. But I do think there was some magic there in this idea of, I know that you've got a certain amount of energy to use in your life period. Where that energy gets used is the thing that I might be able to have some control over. And if you're losing a lot of that energy over running out to be able to make sure you can get certain tasks done or like like hitting the gym or making sure that you can you know figure out what what you're going to eat for dinner or mm-hmm. making sure it's easy for you to be able to arrange transportation home and those things stopped sucking your energy mm-hmm. and just were available to you Then it gives you more energy to be able to spend at home It gives you more energy to be able to pump into really important problems or challenges at work or relationships with coworkers. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something magical about that idea of kind of energy management. You know, if that's the best way to resolve it or not, I think is an open question. But I, I do think there's something there that's
1: interesting. Sure, and I and I love the word you, the the word magical because it really is. It feels like a university as opposed to a place of work, and uh, and I, I think that's purpose. I think that's really purposeful. Well, you know, this can be my last time where I compare Mark hockey card to Steve hockey card, but Meta, would you have bet so deep in the metaverse like what they're focusing on right now? I guess
0: it depends on what you think about the future, right? Mark has always been a long range thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember being there when, uh, we acquired Instagram and WhatsApp and Oculus and, you know, all of those moves were ridiculed at the time as being way too expensive and, or unnecessary. Um, you know, I remember when Instagram joined and they came for the tour and there was 13 of them, you know, and we just paid a billion dollars and, mm-hmm. you know, everybody, oh, there. this is, <laughs> yeah, this is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And you know, why would you possibly do this? But you know, Mark Mark had a had a longer range um plan and, and a vision for what this would look like in the future and and you know could kind of see maybe around some corners at that time where were where, where people weren't seeing the value. And so I I think, you know, the it is too early to tell whether this is a brilliant bet, like another brilliant bet that people just don't understand yet, or whether it's a colossal flop. But I, I do appreciate the boldness and, and original Ooh. thinking that, that Mark brings to these ideas. I I have found him to be very good at being able to um, to form his own opinions in mm-hmm. in these long long term bets. And if you believe that we're moving to a world where, you know, the the technology on the AR VR side is going to get better. Where, you know, one of Mark's key premise there is that you're going to feel the sense of presence in, you know, where with anyone wherever they sit in the world, in very different experiences. And if you believe that to be true and you say it's just, you know, about getting the form factor right and it's just about getting the cost to the right time, but like that's the next computing platform. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be spending a lot of time there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there there's going to be a lot of meaningful experiences and relationships that get built there. Um, then I think it looks like a brilliant bet. Mm. Um, but it's a big bet. you know, I, I think Huge as we've bet. seen in the stock price and and a lot of the criticism, you know the the question is do you need to spend you know twenty five billion now to get there? Do you need to spend you know three or five billion to get there? I think the difference there is what draws a lot of the scrutiny. But if you really believe it and you think that's going to be the future, then this is the type of bet you would make. So I I understand it based on mm-hmm. you know the way that that he's made these bets in the past. Once he's committed to it, he's going to see it through. But mm-hmm. you know if it flops, it it will definitely be one for the textbooks.
1: Yeah, and you know what? If you have the capital and you see the future, you might as well at least aim that way. You know because Shooter not shot. only are you... Yeah. Well, shoot your shot. But I mean, it's not even that you're, you know, that your boat's floating that way. It's like, you're bringing the whole party with you. So it's going to grab, it's going to create gravity that people are going to be interested in and probably start learning from and experimenting with that, that, that universe anyhow. So. Well, and these are,
0: you know, cause these are big bets, right? You think mm-hmm. about, um, you know, how much, how much capital and time Jeff Bezos has put into blue origin and, and this belief in space as kind of mm-hmm. the next frontier. I mean, Elon Musk, you know, it is really bet heavily on the future of transportation, the future of communication, you know, and, and all of those at the time look like ridiculous mm-hmm. bets. And, you know, you know and, and only in hindsight, when you look back with full information about the future and it's kind of full technicolor vision, can you look mm-hmm. back and start to assess these things and say, wow, what a brilliant idea or whoa, like, was that off? Um, but it usually isn't incremental. So mm-hmm. I would say I've got more like if you if you go back to your playing card analogy, I've got more of a belief that it's going to look and feel more like a paradigm shift to whatever that ends up being, mm-hmm. than it feels incremental yeah. to what mm-hmm. we're doing today. And yeah, so right. these ones that feel radically different than today. I think in the spirit of time, we kind of look back and say, yeah, that's what the iPhone felt like yeah. when it came out, you know, like a lot of the big technology advances, you know, the first time you watched Netflix and there was like enough broadband coverage to be able to see it and not go to Blockbuster or buy a CD, you know, like those moments are pretty spectacular. Mm. It's the same thing with self-driving car, you know, you get in one and, you know, for, for the first five minutes, like on believable, your mind is blown and quite quickly it becomes normal and you forget mm-hmm. that it was such a big moment for you. I, I think we might be in in store for a bunch more of those
1: experiences moving forward. I I a hundred percent agree. And I actually think it, you know, we talked about the iPhone. I actually do think it's Apple that's going to bring that kind of wow moment uh, when, when their devices finally come out because uh, you know, you see tickles and trickles of it from Asia and other companies. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, just because of the, 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 the platform they have for distribution. Um, and you know the ability to, to turn people's minds where they're kind of sh- snickling and giggling, thinking, oh, well, that's a video game platform, and all of a sudden turn it into an AR thing that's going to empower your day. Um, you know, I I, I bet it there just because I'm a, I guess I'm a fanboy, but uh, all the same, you know what, I just, I just, I, I can't wait for the future. I mean, I, I explain to my kids constantly, but you know what, how much hard it was when I had to go to Blockbuster or, you know, and we'd have to choose a video, maybe it wasn't there. I had to drive, it took an hour. But do you know what? At the same time, it was a nice way to spend with your mom. You know, I actually kind of enjoyed hand in hand trying to figure out what video to watch and all that. Yeah. So there's stuff you're missing. You know, this this instantaneous. My daughter watching things on double speed constantly can't be good for the brain. I'm telling her constantly. Um, but you know, there's there's some romantic parts of the slow down and uh, enjoy together. Well, well, you know what? I want to talk a little bit more about the startup land uh, that uh, that is Steve. Um, tell me about eighty twenty solutions.
0: So 8020 Solutions was a company, uh, my second startup that I founded, it was focused on marketing automation. So how do you provide, um, you know, a single cloud, right right now it'd be comparable to uh, kind of an early version of marketing cloud uh, that Salesforce would offer. But it was really about this idea that we, at the time we were seeing uh, a bunch of different tactics that were being used um, on the internet and and digital uh, to be able to engage um, customers or consumers and so you'd see there's one app to be able to build a contest and there's another app to be able to send email campaigns and there's another app to run sms campaigns and there was another app to be able to to put out surveys and you know we looked at that landscape and said this is this is really confusing and not the way that a marketer would want to work with these um these different tactics And so our goal at the time was really about how do we put them all into one dashboard and then how do we add on layers of intelligence, which at the time was how do you segment an audience across based on being able to see what they're doing in different environments? How do you create experiences for them that are going to be meaningful such that they feel seen when they get into a different experience with you? It doesn't feel Mm -hmm. like they're starting from scratch. Again, and so it was really the early days of being able to create kind of a, a single profile of the customer to try to carry that seamlessly across experiences so mm-hmm. that you could both reduce friction and increase loyalty. And, um, and that was the focus of that company. It was about how do we bring uh, that technology to the mainstream and, and bring it to an audience uh, of marketers. Such that they could feel in control of these technologies, not that it needed to be outsourced to a bunch of different technology vendors.
1: Mm. Now, I, and that's, and that's super interesting. I find I find the uh, the, the the name of the company very uh, startup. I mean, it's like good enough eighty twenty, which which I understand. Like I, I I actually tell a lot of the startups aim for that. Don't don't just launch and learn, right? Which is which makes a lot of sense. But one thing that intrigued me when I looked in is you had some really, really, really good clients um, that were that were part of your uh, part of your system. Um, because I and I I joke about that good you know good enough analogy. Um, can you share with me maybe a story of success you had with one of these clients and maybe somewhere where you struggled? You know, it's a startup struggle still.
0: Yeah, you know the the successful examples were always kind of clever things that marketers were able to do when they had all of this connected in one spot. So they were these, I think now they're called journeys on the marketing side, but at the time those didn't exist. And it was about how do you create these these early stages of journeys that were really meaningful based on information you were collecting from people. And I remember one great example from when we first started, we were doing some work with um, Mars on the pet food side. And it was really helpful for me because at the time, you know, you get to learn a lot about businesses and the kind of nuances of those businesses when you get to work with them. And I remember at the time I learned that there were these kind of key moments, like inflection points in the life of, um, of your pet. And it was, I think it was when a kitten turns into a cat or when a puppy turns into a dog, there's kind of this, um, I think it's a year or there's like this point where you move over from call called puppy food to dog food. You've kind of officially become, you've graduated up to being a dog.
1: <laughs> you have a and, cat yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and, you know, it's a big moment for many reasons, but, you know, pr- primarily it's because you need to move on to a different food. And once you're on, there, there's kind of medical reasons, I, I think at the time or dietary reasons that once you kind of get on a, a particular brand of, of dog food, that it, that it's meaningful to stay on it for kind of a, a longer period of time and switching too often uh, could be problematic. And so we realized that there was this kind of key inflection point around a year. Mm-hmm. And we'd had this campaign, it was a loyalty campaign that they had set up where, you know, you can put in your, your puppy's information and, and you know, they, they had done these triggered emails. And one of the triggered emails that came out there was happy birthday to Max mm-hmm. or Fluffy or whatever it is. And they had done some work on our platform to be able to say, not only are we going to kind of personalize this and send it back to them, but we're going to give them a really great deal. And, and we're going to give them a, a really nice graduation pass. So it's like, Hey, congratulations. Like you're a year old, you're now a dog. We're going to give you the first, um, you know, dog food thing. We're going to graduate you up. We're going to give it for free. they created this ceremony. You're entered into this contest. They they really created like a magical moment around that transition. And this made a lot of sense because it was a really magical moment for the owner Mm-hmm. Because they had this great, oh, it's one year, and like you know, this is my first birthday that I get to celebrate for my pet. But on the flip side, it really made a ton of business sense for the brand because once you locked them on this new kind of path, you kind of had a lot of loyalty um, and good retention on on that kind of stream of of purchasing. And so that that was a good example. Mm-hmm. I would say bad examples, bad examples to me were always cases where. We built the solution before understanding the problem. Mm, you know, and, and that was kind of a common mistake that we made in the early days of that business, where we got really excited about the technical problem. Like, like we got really excited about the technology and its capabilities. Mm-hmm. And you know, once you start with the solution, you say, wouldn't it be cool if dot, dot, dot mm-hmm. versus a customer needs that, that that or this is a problem that's been identified in, mm-hmm. in you know somebody wants to hire our product to do this job for them I think you start to run into this challenge of then starting to try to retrofit it into a bunch of different situations. I know it's really cool, and let me tell you about all the technical features I've built into it, and now I'm gonna kind of jam it into your problem. Mm -hmm. And I think we suffered from that in the early days where we had built a lot of really interesting functionality. We had used some technologies we were really proud of, but quite frankly, Mm -hmm. didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And nobody cared about those particular dimensions of what we were building. And and we needed to take a moment to step back and say, we have to start getting closer to our customer. If we're not getting our requirements right from the customer, if we're doing it based on what we think the most exciting thing to build in or or the new language that we wanna work in, we're never gonna solve real problems and we're never gonna build a meaningful business. And so I think a lot of our failure stemmed from times where we over-rotated on uh, technology solutions Mm -hmm. and we undervalued solving customer problems.
1: You know, that's I have this conversation with startups all the time. Is is technology for technology's sake is not a solution. You know, it's yeah. it's that it's that simple and, and it's too common. I've fallen into it, you know, some for of the sure. coolest, sexiest have. tech, and then realized. Hey, uh, so uh, who's going to buy this one? You know, you have to think, you have to think exactly what you're saying. Well, you know what, speaking of technology that I actually really believe in and something that uh, I think is super cool. Um, we have uh, Reza V from this week's Canadian Startups That We Love, OVU, who will tell us a little bit about OVU and has a great question for you. Reza, elevator pitch time. Who are you? What's your company's name and what do you do?
2: Thank you for having me, Chris. Um, I'm Reza V, founder of Ovu. Ovu is a connection company. Our product is a smart business card that you simply tap on your client's phone and exchange contacts, but we are building a lot more features than, than just the exchange contact. We would love to be the solution to in-person connection uh, um, software.
1: Awesome. And I have seen it even in the early days and thinks such a cool thing. Such a really, really, really cool, uh, um, we'll call it almost a trick because it feels like a trick because yeah. it works so well without even having to think about it. Yeah. But in three-ish sentences or less, tell me a little bit about the founding team at Ovoo.
2: Um, I am very fortunate to have a very strong team. And I think you and I met when I was trying to get a strong CTO. And in that trip in Lisbon, I I found my CTO. So he's now my CTO. Um, I'm the only founder, I'm a solo founder, but I was fortunate enough that early on, I got a very strong operation manager Mm -hmm. and a very strong CTO. Uh, who believed in the in the mission and what i've I've accomplished in the first year and a half and they joined me after that um our operation manager worked at article.com, which is yeah. a, um, a unicorn here in Vancouver and mm-hmm. he was employee number two growing the company from zero to hundred million dollar and the CTO uh, he's been with three unicorns so far and oh. he his mission is to to make you know have ovu as his fourth so, that's his his
1: experience well i i i'm hoping for i'm hoping that 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 path happens as well so that's very good well tell me why did you start over um very interesting
2: i i wanted i i'm passionate about marketing and i wanted to have my my own marketing services and first thing that comes to any business owner's mind is you should have a business card to make your business legit um, I just didn't want to be ordinary like everybody else. I needed something that stands out. So I started researching. I went down the rabbit hole of how do I you know, make myself stand out and, and make a unique business card. And this is back in 2017. I came across NFC and, and QR. And I think I spent about a little over a month on it. And I had some prototypes. I had some QR and landing page and, and some NFC cards linked together uh, with very little development. And I was going to conferences, trying them out. And I quickly noticed that NFC and QR been around for a decade, um, but the adoption is not there because it's not practical and uh, Apple wasn't supporting it. So I said, okay, uh, that idea is not is not practical. I put it in my notes. I go by, you know, uh, with my uh, uh, regular days and then 2019 Apple announces that NFC they're they're supporting NFC tags and they have third party support I didn't even have to think about it. I think it took me three days to start the company. I heard about it, jumped on a call with the developer. I said, I don't want to even second guess. I don't even want a landing page to testing. I, I I think there's a there's an opportunity here and I wouldn't be surprised other people will jump on it. So three months later, we had an application and and we had a go-to-market strategy.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I think I already know this because I follow you, as a V and all the excitement, but can you share what I like to call a big win or a recent win in Ovo's journey? Recent win.
2: Um, well, the the new venture BC, I think that's what you're you're referring to. We mm-hmm. we didn't even uh, competition wasn't my radar. My my focus is is customers, and I'm very customer obsessed. Mm-hmm. So every day I'm I'm focusing on building the best product, talking to customers, see what are the flaws, and and improve on it um so somebody brought to my attention about new venture bc i wasn't even sure if we qualify or or (laughs) if we have all the right requirements so i got my assistant on top of it, and i was like it's your project just paying me when you need me and every you know couple of weeks she was like you've got to submit this you've got to submit this so i was even surprised we made it to the last round and, and we won it but um i'm i'm very glad that that happened
1: Well, fantastic. I mean, that's a very visible, um, competition, probably one of our most visible here in Vancouver or in Canada or Western Canada. So, uh, you know, it really does speak volumes about your mission and what you're doing, which I think is awesome. Well, you, you know, you've been on the journey for a bit. Um, can you share with me something, you know, that you learned along the way that you wish you understood before you started or when you started?
2: There are a ton. I don't think, I don't think this podcast is (laughs) long
1: enough for all the
2: learnings. Mm -hmm. Um, I I read a book a long time ago I think my my dad when he he took an MBA course in his um 40s he suggested a book that he came across good to great by Jim mm-hmm. Collins I read it a decade ago and I remember the emphasis on first who then what now I'm experiencing it that that mm-hmm. first who then what is so important when you have a superstar team around you 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 can conquer the world you can do anything you can pivot you can have ideas when when you don't have the right team that that becomes really hard so i'm i'm paying way more attention to to people we hire and i'm transitioning from a from a CEO that is doing day to day to a CEO that is leading and 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 kind of being more people person mm-hmm. and we are at the size that I need to make that transition so I'm I'm learning a ton on on the leadership side the other thing is I'm I bootstrap the company by focusing on customers and that's mm-hmm. how we got this far and I'm I'm focusing on sales sales customer Putting ourselves in front of customer, talking to to enterprise and any any level of customers. Um, I wish I did more of that, uh, and and I'm planning to do more of that. Um, because I feel like startups get in a in a loop of thinking about VCs and raising money and advisors mm-hmm. and how how good we look in the eyes of the public and the PR, and there are a whole bunch of fluff. That you know, um, maybe in the in the a year ago when the startup community was thriving and lots of money was inject- uh, in being injected in the companies, that was okay. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a big deal. But now that you know, we're getting some reality check from the economy. I feel like uh, startup founders don't have the luxury of just mm. you know pitching and we'll see what happens. You've got to you've got to generate money somehow. Mm-hmm. So so you've got to be a little bit more customer driven and sales driven. Mm-hmm. um and the and the reality checks of the the economics behind the business model comes in much quicker. Um, so uh,
1: these are all been good learnings. Oh, they're awesome learnings. And thanks for sharing because I, I agree. I mean, you've got to focus. You got to ask questions. You got to focus on the customer and uh, not take your eyes off the price. I mean, the way you even just said the contest didn't matter at first. What mattered was the customers. I could not like what you said that I'm like, oh, everyone who's listening, please take note because that it's a vanity metric compared to a real metric. And I'll, I, and I'll, I I'll add, I'll add Please. a
2: comment to that. My okay. best, my best advisor is my dad. I, I grew up in a, in a, an entrepreneur family. My my mm-hmm. dad, you know, at some point managed a little over a thousand employees. So I, 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 I go to him a lot. When I told him about the prize, I was super excited about the new venture BC. Maybe we can win. And my dad mm-hmm. was like, what's the prize?" I said, 110,000, but 80,000 is cash. The rest is services. My dad was mm-hmm. like, okay, 80,000. If you focus in your business and every month you add $20,000 to your sales, that's your prize. Mm-hmm. So don't focus on the prize and all of a sudden lose $80,000 in sales. You can, you can make up for that prize. If you win it, amazing. But if you don't, focus on uh, increasing that sales. And, and ever since then, I was super focused on, on, on the day-to-day business and, and New Venture BC was a, was a cherry
1: on top. A very nice, Cherry, at that. But that is that is some great advice. Well, as you know, uh, we chat with some of Canada's most uh, interesting and successful founders on Afternoon Tea. And our guest this week is Steve Irvin of, of Integrate AI. And uh, I was really hoping that you'd have a great question to share with with Steve and ask him about their journey. Uh, i'm I'm super
2: glad you're doing this because I've never had a chance to meet Steve in person. He seems like a very impressive person to to meet to begin with. Um, I quickly looked at his LinkedIn. given his experience in in um meta, Instagram, and Facebook, as well as um him being in the data world, I'm super curious to know where are we going with the data landscape the, the data is becoming the new new oil if you if if mm-hmm. uh, um if you may because it's such an important fuel to everything the startup does this startups could have amazing idea but if you don't have the proper data you can't execute on the on the service or on the on the platform you may so it's it's a, it makes and breaks big businesses mm-hmm. and up until now it was a wild you know wild wild west where the data anybody could access it and 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 you know businesses like facebook businesses like you know uh, um big tech companies had a lot of control going forward what are we seeing? What's what's happening with the data landscape? And how can a smaller startup really play a role with that? And, and it seems to me there is an unfair advantage to some startups that have access to data and other startups who are coming in, and they have to be compliant to all sorts of regulatory. And they it just puts them in a very disadvantaged position. So I'm very curious to know what he thinks the next 10 years of the data landscape look like and what does that mean to startups.
0: Thanks for the question, Reza. One of the things I've been thinking about a lot, and I think informed by my background, is the difference that we're seeing between we we talk a lot about kind of machine learning and AI and kind of the future and this idea that software moving forward is going to be much more probabilistic, right? M- much more intelligent, much more probabilistic than software in the past, which has been much more deterministic, right? Rules, engines, or code where we we kind of code in the instruction. And it, there's a similar thing that's happening on the data side right now. And, and I like to think of it as, as a difference between kind of data analyst work, like traditional data analyst work and data science work. And and the thing that I think people get wrong is they see that as a bit of a continuum uh, where I actually think it's a pretty big paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. So if you think about traditional data analyst work, it's a lot about retrieving answers from data. So it's about how do I uh, query data? How do I ask questions of data and get the answer that is contained within that data? So I wanna know how many people in this data set live in this city? I want to know you know of those people, I want to retrieve the information. What else can you tell me about those people? And I pull that information back. And that type of work is really well understood, and I think there's a lot of really great tools for it. And um, you know that that has been the history of a lot of what we have built to date in the software stack. If we think about moving forward, what are the big opportunities for startups? I actually think they're much more on the data science side. Because data science works very differently. Data science is about being able to understand statistical relationships or correlations between phenomena in the data and being able to kind of train on that so you can pick up those patterns in a very nuanced way. And then when you see something new that you've never seen before, be able to predict what you think is going to happen in that environment based on what you've learned in another environment. And the reason why that's important is you're not retrieving or trying to connect deterministically between the two. You're not trying to go there and say, can I build one single profile of an individual and then find them? You know, I know Chris, I got a bunch of information on him. When he shows up somewhere, I got to know it's Chris. You know, these systems are so good. You don't need to know it's Chris. I know that if you're behaving in a particular way that you're probably looking for something. I know that, you know, if you come on and, and you want to, you're frustrated and you want to resolve a problem and you're acting in a particular way, I I can see based on the way people similar to you in the past have acted, what I should do to best resolve your problem. And that's the way that, that problems get solved with intelligence systems. So if you think about what is required then from a data standpoint, I think it looks very different. It's less about trying to create these centralized individual profiles, which has been really the focus of a lot of data activity, How do I centralize things? How do I have a master record? How do I deterministically link that to everything so I know with certainty that it's Chris, that that's his information, that that's where he needs to go? And move more to a world of how do I make available the statistical properties of the data? How do I start to understand what those intelligent, how do I work backwards from intelligence systems and tasks and understand what did they need from data? And how do I preserve the privacy of that information? How do I think about the security of that information? And when you start from the intelligence systems and you work back to what is required of the data, what data is required, in what formats, where does it need to sit? How does it need to work? It turns out the answers are very different. And if you're looking for who are the next Googles, Microsofts, um, Apples of this next generation, I really believe that's where you should be looking. It is who is defining the new version of the stack? Who, who's the new cloud? Who's figuring out the new way to access that information in a world that doesn't rely on everything being centralized, everything being in one master database, but in a world where data can be created anywhere. It can be created in your car. It could be created in your house. And you could keep, and, and it could be owned by anyone. The 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 data of your car or your phone or your house can be owned by you individually, and you can contribute it to intelligence tasks in meaningful ways. So what, what does that future look like? I think it's going to look really different than the future we've seen in the past. So the, the parallels I would draw to the past is once we saw the internet take hold you saw a brand new class of companies pop up and a brand new way of thinking about interacting with customers, thinking about the value of data, how to use it, how to retrieve it. I think what we're going to see now in this next generation of software is it's going to be not just smart, meaning it's connected, but intelligent. And what intelligence software needs is very different from a data standpoint. And so to Rez's question, I, I would go deep into uh, working backwards from first principles on mm-hmm. these kind of data science, intelligence, software jobs, and what do they need from a data standpoint? And I think what you'll find is the future has got data that's more distributed. Mm-hmm. It's more artifacts of data. So it's more, you know, what data, how can data be captured in ways that doesn't have to leave it so susceptible to security breaches or privacy issues? Um, And we're going to be trading in models more than we're going to be trading in data. So this idea of selling data, passing data around that is so liberally done today, I think you look five years down the road and that's totally gone. It's all intelligence trading.
1: Interesting. Interesting. Well, tell me about, I mean, you're talking about the future. Let's talk about a little bit about the past here. And I believe your first startup, which was Motion Media Interactive. What was that all about?
0: Yes, this is my first startup out of school. Um, you know, probably still on record if they had one of you know most mistakes ever made by a, a single founder uh, in in the history of of companies being founded. You know, I really didn't know what I was doing. I you know I, I was willing to work really hard at the time, and that's what I knew. I was willing to put the hours in. I was willing to fail, and I, you know I was really ambitious and excited. Um, but you know, wasn't really ready for what what was coming. And and at that time was really just learning how to build a business. But but the idea behind the the business was at the time, and, and this is really gonna, gonna date me, although it wasn't really as as far back as it as it seems by the way I described this. At the time where we were work, what we were working on was updatable and trackable CD-ROM applications. Mm -hmm. And and they were required because at the time, the problem was that broadband internet was not stable in a lot of places. And so uh, the internet was available, but um, being able to to consume high uh, quality content, um, you know, high bandwidth content was really challenging. So Netflix was still sending out CDs at this point, they weren't um, yet at a point where people were consuming it through streaming. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we found was that that video content, you know, kind of TV commercials and rich kind of like biographies and and previews were the content that did the best, but getting that content to people in a way where you understood how they were interacting with it and what they were doing with it or updating that was really challenging because the internet wasn't available at that bandwidth to do it effectively. Mm -hmm. And again, we're talking about like 2001 here. So this is like, it's going to seem like I'm talking about, uh, you know, the 1900s or something, but this was early in this, um, in the century. Mm -hmm. And what we found was that if we could put this on one of these, these little CDs and you could put it in a newspaper or you could put it in uh, a magazine or you could distribute it at a trade show, uh, that you could put these really rich content areas like rich videos, movie trailers, these cool like BMW films that we doing at the time. You could put them on these CDs. And then with very little bandwidth, we could track what was happening on that CD. So we could say, hey, you know, somebody is watching or they're not watching it. So a lot of what you would see today in like Google Analytics about how people are moving through websites we could actually do in the early days through how people were moving through these digital experiences on a CD. And ultimately that turned into what, what today would be thought of as like web analytics and intelligence. Um, but this was kind of the precursor of it, doing it in, in, a, in a different kind of form factor. And so that, that was kind of my first experience, my first jump into running a technology company, um, my first uh, founding experience, and uh, probably the one where I got the most scars and, and the most learnings. Uh, also probably the, the, the least well, objectively the least successful of the startups that I've run. Um, but I thought from a growth standpoint, in terms of being mm-hmm. in the seat, understanding the decisions, learning the hard lessons, I thought that was you know the best phase of my career in terms of like pure education and trial mm-hmm. by fire. So I look back on it very fondly now. But at the time, I will say, um, you know, it, w- it was a different spin on fun at the time. It was not, um, you know, the fun that, that that we would experience kind of talking on this podcast. It was very fun in terms of like hard lessons I needed to learn to have fun later in life, but really challenging as I was going through it.
1: You know, but but I think it'd be easy and fair to say 80-20 wouldn't have existed if you hadn't had those lessons or yeah, no your question. journey with, with Facebook meta wouldn't have existed if you didn't have those lessons per chance. So it is, you know... Well, whilst it might not have been as profitable the way you said it, like it's, it's a learning experience, which is, which is, you know, just as profitable because how fast can you learn? How fast can you build? Um, And, 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 and I'm, I'm going to be spending my 50th birthday soon. So I would say I probably have a very similar path in terms of where my technological uh, um, (laughs) history is. Um, And I think that BMW film that you're referring to the chase, I I remember that one too, which was so cool back at the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, one thing that I think is quite interesting is you sit on a lot of boards, and you're a bit, you're clearly a busy guy. Why do you think it's so important to sit on so many organizations outside of um, Integrate?
0: I think it's important to have perspective. You know, as I think about being a strong leader inside of a startup, it's important that you have an ability to get outside of yourself. A little bit and outside of the walls of your company to be able to to gain perspective and i think that makes you a better leader Mm -hmm. you know i i i sit on a variety of boards and and all of them are are purposeful you know i i sit on boards because i'm really passionate about the advancement of ai i'm passionate about uh brain health um you know I'm, i'm i'm passionate about um customers and, and understanding kind of their realities. You know, I joined the Aviva Canada board uh, four years ago now because in in my neck of the world, like in, in these kind of digital startups that spend a lot of time kind of vitalizing and working at a particular pace with a particular set of issues, I find people lose empathy for um, different types of companies in different um, industries. And when you're dealing in a heavily regulated industry like insurance or broader in in financial services, I think the same thing is true in healthcare and other industries. You're dealing with a level of complexity that we get to avoid a lot of times when you're building a startup in in some of these technology spaces. Mm -hmm. And what it leads to is a lot of people building these kind of memes inside of the company and they're a bunch of idiots that work at these companies. You know, they, they they don't know how to move quick. They're not agile. They don't understand, like, you know, th- these kind of dinosaurs that are trying to mm-hmm. cling on to the old way of doing business and things have totally changed and they don't get it. And... I think that's just wrong. And and a good reminder for me is to be able to jump into the belly of the beast and see the type of complexity that they're dealing with, understand the challenges and the thoughtfulness that put, people put into some of these issues and why things take longer. You know, like what is driving the length, And it's not to say that You know, either one is the answer. I think you can sit in some of these big financial institutions and say, there's things they could be doing that they know to move faster, to bring in more innovation. You know, sometimes they're overly conservative. The same way I think you could be critical of of a lot of these um, high growth startups, uh, Mm of not thinking about bad actor scenarios, not Mm -hmm. being as responsible as they need to, not considering privacy or security in all ways to the the degree that they should be. Mm -hmm. And I, I think both are fair criticisms. But I think if you if you sit too much of your life in in one camp, um, you just start to lose perspective. And I think that perspective is very helpful for me. And I, I try to bring it back into the company mm. to make sure that we're more empathetic and that we're more open to different perspectives or different ways of thinking about solving problems. And I've found that, that it's also healthy for me from a energy standpoint. Mm. You know, sometimes you get so mirrored in your own problems, like in the depths and the weeds of a startup or a scale up, that popping back up and looking at other people's problems and being able to play an advisory role or being able to play a board role where you can challenge them, but you don't need to own and operate the solutions to all of those problems. Mm -hmm. Allow you to do that in your own business. You get to pop up a little bit and say, hold Mm -hmm. on, am I thinking about this from the right level? Should Mm -hmm. I be thinking about it in the weeds the way I am? Or is there an opportunity for me to step back a little bit?" And think totally, like solve this problem at a totally different level. And as the CEO or as the founder of the company, that's what people should expect of me. I should be Mm -hmm. the one pulling them up and saying, are we thinking about this the right way? Is there a different Mm -hmm. angle or attack angle on this? I shouldn't be the one that's trapped in the weeds with them every day, providing Mm -hmm. the same perspective that they have. For sure. And so I find that boards do that for me naturally. And they kind of help Mm -hmm. balance me out a little bit on the energy side.
1: I think that I think that's really interesting, a way of you know kind of expanding your mind. and as well, you know I mean, you've been you've been building a lot of skill sets in order to help these important uh, organizations who might be not, you know, especially on the tech side, not thinking the same way you know, really leveraging those experiences in order to help bring them up, uh, especially, you know, these are very important organizations trying to help, uh, you know, the greater good within Canada and, and, and internationally. Um, well, you know, I actually have one question. I mean, one of my favorite things about this podcast is I get to speak to, you know, people across our great nation and uh, um, and, and since you've had such, um, you know, a really good opportunity of working in the belly of the beast, you know, some of the biggest ones in the States and, you know, in Toronto, which is a city I personally love. Um, what makes Toronto or Canada, you know, a great a great place to do a startup? And what's the downsides?
0: So I said this when I came back. I moved back from Silicon Valley from California to be able to start this company. And it was funny at the time when I'd moved back. I think it's it's much more um common now for people to be moving back. I think you know you mm-hmm. get amazing people at executive levels or that did start big companies and been very successful moving back to Canada all the time. And that shouldn't be new news for people now. I, I truly <laughs> believe that Canada is, you know, the greatest country in the world and one of the best places in the world to build a startup and one of the best places in the world to live, mm-hmm. if not the best, you know, a lot of great cities, great people, great mosaic and diversity of people. And so, okay. you know, there's a lot, there's a lot going for this country that I think people are just starting to discover. But when I moved back, I thought it was an interesting experience for me because the people inside of this kind of bubble in Silicon Valley were all going and telling me what a great idea. Wow. You're moving back. Toronto's really on the rise. Canada's this AI hub. You're moving back. This is a really smart strategic move. And then I moved back and I talked to people inside of Canada at the time. They were like, what are you doing back here? Like, you know, like, (laughs) you know, your your wife didn't like California or, you know, like what, what kind of, like why are you here? Like what, what happened? And I think there was a bit of a confidence Mm. issue at the time where we said, you know, we saw more people leaving than we did coming back. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that was like, are we just the farm system for Silicon Valley? Like, if, you, mm-hmm. if you're really good, do you just kind of get pulled up to the majors, and then you get your big break? And <laughs> um and, and I think that narrative has really changed. And for mm-hmm. good reason, I, I told everybody when I moved back, I contemplated the easiest move for me at that time would be to start the company where I was, where my family already was in, in California at the time, I was mm-hmm. in the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, you know, there's a lot of talent that I knew there. It, w- it would have been easy to be able to get the company off the ground. Mm-hmm. but i I genuinely believe that the best place in the world to build this business in a great AI at the time was in Canada. And I moved back to do that. And it wasn't a hometown discount, and it wasn't you know, to be closer to family, although those were great um mm-hmm. you know luxuries of being able to do it. It was because i I genuinely thought that this was the best place in the world to build the business. And I stick with it. I mean, we're five years in now, and I think the team that we've been able to build, the respect that we've got, the quality of talent, mm-hmm. um, you know, how much people love the culture, living in these is, you know, has has been everything that we'd hoped it would be. And and so I think anybody who's listening, who's either contemplating coming to Canada to build a company to join a startup, or who's a founder sitting in Canada mm-hmm. saying, "Am I in the right spot? Can I really build a big global business from from Canada?" if that's still a question, should feel unequivocally that this is the place to be and you absolutely can build an amazing company here and get the talent you need to scale that up to be one of the largest global companies. And I, and I feel like if we fast forward, you know, over the next decade, you're going to see that a lot of the the best companies that are built are being built um, here at home. So I'm, I'm really proud Canadian, but also, mm-hmm. you know, very um, shrewd business operator. And I think mm-hmm. both The proud Canadian in me and the business operator feels that this is a good decision, which is always uh, good to put me at peace, but also Mm -hmm. I think a good sign for, for Canadians.
1: Oh, I think that's, I think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. Man, I'm learning so much here uh, that, that, you know, from I'm personally tickled about all this, but you know, we have two questions that we ask every episode of the afternoon tea. And I'm really intrigued. I mean, again, you've shared a lot of gold already, but let's dig in deep for that one cherry on top. Can you please share one piece of advice that would help a younger Canadian founder? Build a
0: business with soul. Mm. I, really believe that the thing that I got wrong in my earlier companies that I've come to appreciate uh, in this one is that what matters in building a company is that you have this feeling of soul inside the company, that you're about more than the products that you're building, that you've got a mission, that you've got a set of values, that you operate in pursuit of that mission and people are clear that it matters to you and that you as the leader of the company care about that mission. It's what gets you up out of bed every day that you share that that inspiration with other people, that you recruit people that care about the same thing. And that that's not just about the technology you're building, the product you're building, the customers that you're enrolling, that's about something bigger. That's about you know this this bigger purpose that you have for why the company needs to exist, the impact that you want to have in the world, and what matters to you. What what is your company about? What are the values that you are going to use in making tough decisions? And how do you make sure that you get people? How do you make sure a that you're really clear about what those things are? Like what is your purpose really? What it is it's not like what are the words you put on the wall, but what do you really care about? Like what. What's gonna? What, what are you willing to run through brick walls for? And what are the values? Like, how are you going to make really tough decisions about who to hire, who to fire, um, how to approach different customers, what type of opportunities you're going to pursue? I think if you can get really clear early on the mission and on your values, and you can incorporate those into the way that the business operates and makes decisions, then you build a business with soul, and people mm. inside of the business feel it. They wake up that. every day, they're excited to be there. And that's what builds great businesses. And that the output of that is a great culture. Mm-hmm. You know, you mm-hmm. can't set it. It's not the ping pong tables and the great office. I think we have seen yeah. that with the pandemic, that stuff can mm-hmm. come and go. Mm-hmm. It's about your commitment to a purpose that's bigger than your day-to-day work. And it's about people believing that you're taking it seriously and you're going to make it happen. And I think if you have that, there's a depth to the connection that the people in the company have and the connection to the company that you really can't describe, but is so meaningful to get through the ups and downs of a startup in pursuit of a really
1: big opportunity. The soul, the soul, what a great Canadian answer too. I really love that one. That, that, that's fantastic. Well, you know, you've worked with some of the the, the, the biggest uh, tech leaders in the world. And so I'm, I'm quite intrigued by, uh, by, by, by your response here, but uh, can you please share the name of a Canadian entrepreneurial star or founder that you look up to?
0: Yeah, this one, you know, there there are a lot that uh, I, I've been very fortunate, I think, through my journey um, since I've been a Canadian entrepreneur um, mm-hmm. for a while, you know, kind of in the dark days of entrepreneurship here, um, you know, through to what I, I think is the heyday, you know, just the beginning of the heyday that we're starting to see right now. I've, I've had the good fortune of, of being able to to work with and learn from a lot of Canadian entrepreneurs, but one that's particularly relevant to uh, this company, Integrate AI, is uh, Justin Lafayette, who is on our board. He was, mm-hmm. um, you know, he, he was the originally a founder of uh, DWL, mm-hmm. who in the '90s, which was ultimately sold IBM for something like three or four hundred million dollars, which you know would be a, a billion plus dollar exit. <laughs> plus, in, <laughs> yeah, plus <laughs> in in current uh, markets. But, um, you know, and then went on to to found uh, Georgian, uh, which is, you know, now Canada's largest uh, VC mm-hmm. and founded that in 2008 in the wake of the financial crisis mm-hmm. um, when, you know, the VC landscape in Canada was still relatively small. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think in both cases, you know, a lot of doubters, a big challenge ahead of him. And, you know, Justin and I had had the opportunity to sit on, an, on another board. Together and, and when I founded Integrate, uh, he essentially stepped up as a bit of a, a co-founder for me. You know, put mm-hmm. the first check in to get us going. And this was Georgian's first. Georgian's a growth fund, mm-hmm. and so usually investing kind of Series B and beyond. And, and this was, yeah, <laughs> yeah, this was their first kind of moon, what they call like moonshot deal mm-hmm. where they invested right up front. And a lot of that was off the the back of the relationship that, mm-hmm. that Justin and I had, had built over years, but you know, he, he's he's stayed very close with me and I think has been a really great advisor for me through and, and board member for me through this process. And it's been interesting to see uh, and learn from his experience because, you know, like a lot of the new wave of VCs actually that we're seeing right now, I think the ones that are really starting to make hay and do great things, they started as operators. Mm. And so they had built up companies they had been through the struggle, they sold those companies and now they're doing the same thing with a VC firm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So they're kind of building a different type of company. And they're, they're thinking about what does it mean to be a capital allocator? And what does it mean to build my business at the same time as helping others build their business? And where can I be innovative and change the way that this landscape works or change the way that this model works? And I, I think that's been really helpful for me. And I think if you look at our board and, and the folks that, that we associate with uh, on our advisory um, board, It's filled with entrepreneurs and operators, you know, people that have been successful, that have grinded it out, that have been at early stages of these companies, larger scale, and have had to to learn the hard lessons and are now willing to to kind of work with us to be able to to help impart that knowledge on us as we grow. So so Justin's been a a huge kind of uh, uh, champion for us.
1: That is so fantastic. Well, Steve, thank you. Thank you so much for, 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 for joining us today and sharing so much. I, I know I learned a lot and uh, I look to, you know, really forward to continuing to watch uh, Integrate grow. And then the, the next five chapters after that, because I don't think it ends with you.
0: I appreciate it, Chris. And congrats on all your success. I mean, thanks for doing this. Uh, thanks for having me on. And I think the, the work you're doing to kind of raise these stories up I know that we had connected originally through the C100, which is Mm -hmm. another great organization that you're very active in. But I really do think this push now for Canadian entrepreneurs really comes from the top down and a lot of people that have built these businesses and and had a level of success being able to kind of pull up this next generation and give them Mm -hmm. the spotlight, give them the opportunities that maybe we didn't have as we were first starting on, on our journeys, Mm-hmm. And so, kind of kudos to you for for setting up this forum and doing this work. I think it's it's a huge boon to to the next set that that ultimately will set the world on fire. They'll take our learnings and ten x them.
1: <laughs> that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's the mission. Forward to that. that is the mission. Well, thank you so much. Ahoy, afternoon tea listeners! If you got this far, I assume you like this episode, and that is awesome. Thank you. In such a case, please rate and review Afternoon Tea Podcast and subscribe on... Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your feeds from. Afternoon Tea is a podcast with a goal to share the stories of Canada's successful tech entrepreneurs in order to prepare the next wave of founders. We do have some great guests lined up for future episodes, but we would love to hear your thoughts too. Please do let us know who you think should be on the show. You can do so by emailing me at podcast at That is... P O D C A S T at TTT, that is three T's dot studio. You will notice there is no dot com because we are that sophisticated. Furthermore, you can find us at social media at TTT underscore studios. I look forward to chatting with you soon.